Welcome to Energy Radio. This is Season 2, Episode 3, and on this episode, we talk about my first love. Uh, for our listeners, the, we're refocusing the Energy Radio podcast, and we're trying to be laser-focused on bringing you value for uh, the project development phases of your decarbonization projects. And this week, uh, on, on this episode, uh, I am joined by Paul Green of Greentech. Paul, welcome to Energy Radio. Thanks so much, Matt. I appreciate it. Awesome. We have not had the pleasure of meeting before this, which baffles me given what I've learned about you uh, on the interweb and, you know, for whatever that's worth about all of our stories, right? But uh, why don't you tell the list? So I'm, I'm along with the listeners learning about you, and I'm sure we know a lot of the same people in the space. Um, but I'm just excited to hear about you yeah. and your journey and, and where you are adding value in this space. And so maybe just start by introducing yourself and, and your firm. Um, and then, you know, after that, I'll ask you to introduce or give us kind of your, your backstory, your origin story in the space. Right. right. Thanks. Be glad to, and, uh, pleasure to, uh, to join and to get to know listeners here. So yeah, Paul Green, I sit in upstate New York. It's a beautiful, uh, late winter day here. And I've been active in the renewable energy space through biogas, anaerobic digestion, for about 30 years, so chemical engineer by schooling. And my firm now, Green Tech, has been active for about a half a year. And so I work with project developers that uh, are looking for a little bit of help to get projects across the finish line. So of the 10 different facets that are involved in developing and getting a project to final investment, Typical developers have seven or eight of them really well covered, whether it's feedstock or offtake or permits or either equity, and I'll help them with the last couple or three because uh, I'm working a lot now with leading edge technologies, uh, some people from Europe that are looking at some newer technologies, whether it's on gas cleaning or pyrolysis is an up and coming thing. and a lot of work to do with nutrient recovery. So we're doing a lot in in this in this overlap in the uh, where sustainable ag meets sustainable energy meets sustainable waste management. There's a lot of overlap there where those those things kind of come into play. So you know I kind of got here through 20 years of technology, doing uh, the construction of digesters, about 15 years as an EPC an engineer to build these facilities in about five years myself as a developer owner operator about 13 years ago i started the american biogas council i was the first uh, dollar into the hat to get that going and was its really? first elected chairman uh 13 years ago yeah no way cool yeah the the writing was on the wall where europe was so far ahead of the states with biogas digestion and it just seemed like the timing was right that it uh, should be breaking here in the U.S. And it's quite something how renewable natural gas, low carbon fuels, the past couple of years have just been really off the charts with activity. You know, our culture has reached a tipping point, as you know, with decarbonizing fuel supplies. Um, you know, the joke I'll use is, okay, keep the carbon out of the ground, right? Use the carbon that's out of the ground. Whatever carbon's in the ground, keep it there. So right. between renewable crops, agricultural manures, food scraps, there's a lot of carbon out of the ground that we can manage better, more sustainably. And so that's what I'm working on. Awesome. So a bunch of places we can go there. Let's start kind of in the present. So Green Tech is a relatively new firm. You mentioned, I think, six months. So you're just right. you're, you're, you're getting getting up and going. Is that right? That's right. So awesome. I have uh, some investors that I'm partnering with, developers and technology providers that trust me to uh, give them some coaching and mentoring and uh, some deal flow where just trying to keep the transaction velocity as, as high as it can be. So um, so you're providing a, a, a consulting service is the is the primary sure. business yeah. model. So yeah. I, I kind of fly by the title of uh, digestion, biogas, RNG advisory services. Excellent. Great. Yeah. Great. Cool. So you kind of went through your, your prior history. So you a lot of it was spent um, 
similar to me, albeit not as long as you, but um, biogas EPC. Um, can you talk a bit more about that experience? Sure, sure. You know, there's nothing more rewarding than to see something get built. You know, I joke, you know, the engineering construction space, you know, your work is so tangible, right? So through places like Ramble, CDM Smith, and Montrose, three big EPCs where I uh, just learned so much with how to present a credible schedule to projects, how to present a credible price, you know, various end users have different interests with cost plus open book versus some people just say, just give me my total lump sum. Um, I don't want to be bothered with the intricacies of shared savings or I'm not going to get in, in your ribs too much about your markups. I just want it fixed work scope for a fixed fee. And so um, it's always an effort to find the right engineers and the right labor you're going to bring to a project because so much of big construction in this space is uh, some low value added stuff like concrete steel rebar. And then you've got some very high value added things as well, like uh, all the controls and pump skids and automation. So it's a building a biogas digester project is a real mix of, uh, you know, you skid, you skid up as much as you can in a factory setting, try to minimize the amount of field work you have to do to keep your your quality up. And it is a bit shocking, you know, how long some of these projects take. Um, you know, you want to build them in a half a year, but the reality is it's it's probably more like a year and a half by the right. time uh, all is all is said and done. And were the EPCs um, technology led? Like, did they have their own technologies, or it was more bringing others' technologies together and being a true traditional EPC that we're familiar with here in yeah. North America. Yeah, so so risk is always that fun thing. So I would say that we would deploy well-proven technologies in innovative fashions, right? So if you say we've got five key building blocks, whether it's feedstock preparation or a digester or a gas cleaning system or a gas scrubbing system or some solids dewatering, a lot of times you'll find somebody who's built a whole bunch of them, but maybe haven't hooked the unit operations together in the way a specific project is. So you you, you try to not be model number 001 of, of too many things just because, you know, if you lean too forward with uh, process risk, you get yourself in trouble. So um, pushing risk south is that term, right? So, so the EPC to earn his margin dollars has to provide a overall process guarantee. And so the EPC, you know, you do your best to push as much risk below you as you can. And you find tech providers that say, okay, sure, I'll I'll give you a guarantee for my piece. And then so if you hook four or five of those guarantees together, you can you can come up with a full so the the term wrap is a right. you know loose term that people kind of understand, right? So you will uh you know, if something goes wrong, you'll you'll back it up, and it's it's a fascinating space to just understand the whole journey of how you get from like uh, conceptual pricing, budget pricing, and how you take that all the way down the line to fixed firm pricing. You know, some people do a little bit of work for free, but getting paid to do what's worthy of getting paid for, and then getting the terminology down right. So um, a budget price or a fell three price or a 30% design, you know, you have to do a lot of education yeah. of the market as far as, yes, so this effort's gonna cost you 100,000, you know, this effort we can do for, for low cost, but the project delivery journey, I find to be fascinating. And I find there's just, in, in, in newer markets like this, there's a lot of appetite to uh, to learn how you get from a cool idea for a project all the way to a firm price. That's this very prescribed process that, um, you know, I've been able to work with some really great brands as EPCs with some wonderful estimators and project managers behind me that um, really know this business. But it's hard work to figure out things like, you know, what does the word contingency even mean in a project, right? Who, who deploys contingency and what, actually what is it? Um, so, you know, it's that amount of money you have there for unforeseen circumstances, but 
you know, at times this other big term change order, right? So, so when do you ask for change order and when do you deploy contingency is always uh, yeah. a fun conversation to have with owners. Um, right. Yeah. You, you brought up something about the education uh, piece and, and I, I'm curious in your experience. So it sounds like you, you had, you know, some EPC teams that really understood that progressive design and, you know, what, different stages are like and and how to understand and manage risk at different stages but is it your experience particularly in this industry that maybe that you know that the, the, on the owner side or the developer side there was there is either maybe different terminology or a different level of understanding of that pre FID stage of a project and that you had to do a lot of education and and on you know teaching what contingency is versus margin versus overhead versus you know that kind of stuff and how that gets handled was that a big part of what you were doing certainly and what's fascinating is to see you know of late you have people coming in from like the agricultural mm-hmm. business where historically you know, things are built rather uh, thriftily, right? So you can maybe take some liberties with your materials. Right. And uh, we have oil companies in this space. So they think that your specifications need to be like you're building an oil refinery. And maybe we're not, right? So figuring out the right balance when it comes to materials, but also knowing that we have very corrosive materials we're working with, hydrogen sulfide, um, safety issues, you know, methane's flammable, that if you don't watch what you're doing, you can run across things like fires and explosions. So safety is really paramount. So you try to tighten the belt as much as you can and not gold plate things, but you also know that uh, safety is totally paramount. And if you don't, if you're not careful, you know, safety can be a concern as well as, you know, mechanical reliability. Uh, anytime you're in the waste space, you're dealing with materials that can be aggressive and hard to manage and find contamination in there. So, you know, reliability can also be hard work. So that's where sometimes we wind up looking to Europe where companies or countries mm-hmm. like Germany have been doing things a bit longer than us and have figured out how to build good, strong, rugged machinery, but yet, you know, at times now with the Inflation Recovery Act and domestic content, you get the bonus investment tax credit for domestic content. You know, there's a real premium now to uh, find strong U.S. sourced equipment that you can you can believe in. Yeah, and one thing came to mind as you were talking, you, you brought a good juxtaposition, which we're seeing as well, is, is you have these oil and gas majors. We were on a call with one just the other day where I had to say to them, listen, you're going to have people within your organization who are going to bring, you know, they're going to bring their specs to the table and they're going to bring their standards to the table. And if you hire us, we're going to tell them that a bunch of that's going to work and a bunch of it's not going to work in this space. And and compared to, you, you know, you and I have both probably been to a bunch of operations in agricultural facilities where you know, pardon my French, but they would scare that they scare the hell out of us in terms of you know some of the stuff that they're doing, right? And and it's it's about bringing them together, but it's also about educating people on you know trade offs, right? Like it, you 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 can trade off certain things without compromising safety. You can't trade off other things. Or you mentioned you know uptime. You can trade off you know a, a cheaper project, but you're going to have you're not going to have redundancy on your pumps, and so you're going to have a downtime issue, right? And I think particularly in new spaces like ours, it's important to for folks like yourself to really be facilitating that education on what the trade-offs are. So people, you know, it's just it's just math, and it's just you know, it's it's engineering, it's math, it's science. It's there's nobody's opinion. It's just it is what it is. But the the, the art is in the education of what the trade-offs are. Definitely. And and on top of that, there's the softer side of the business that can really bog things down in the world of like legal and procurement. So just reaching a contract with your partners can be seemingly endless negotiating and haggling over terms of payment, liquidated damages, force majeure, indemnification. So having a legal team with uh, proper experience is, is, is wonderful. And then there's a lot of uh, 
pre-negotiated templates that you can deploy to help expedite and facilitate that are kind of supposed to be neutral towards owners and uh, and developers and or, or, or EPCs. So having um, the ability to even uh, negotiate uh, across the pond as well, right? So having uh, right. you know American lawyers talk to French lawyers in a way that's effective and productive and you know sometimes you can you can blink an eye and you've lost three weeks just goofing around with redlining a contract and then you know where did that three weeks go yeah yeah I, i'm curious when you you talked about uh some of the commercial and procurement stuff is there when you when you were doing epc stuff like there's a bunch of different ways to arrive at an executed epc contract and there's different paths that that owners and epcs can go through i'm thinking of you know, you might you might go like a you know a progressive design build, uh, or you might you know have an owner's engineer who writes a design build spec and then you facilitate a bit. I mean, have you had you probably had exposure to all different types and pathways towards an EPC contract? Is there one that you think works the best if somebody's thinking about, hey, I got this big fifty million dollar project and I'm not sure how to get from here to an EPC contract? Is there something that's worked well in your experience? Right. Certainly, there's some good platforms out there, a couple like the AIA, the American Institute of Architects, there's the EJCDC stack of documents, the Design Build Institute of America, the DBIA has a set of docs. But, you know, what is interesting is um, the scope of work really is the key, right? That defines the battery limits of within this black box on the drawing, I'm gonna do everything within this black box. And then so just defining what's in there, because if you get to a complicated site, right? Maybe you're at a congested site and there's a lot of buried pipe or poor soils, you know, such a fine line where as an EPC, you're theoretically on the hook to do everything, but at some point you gotta say, wait a minute, change order time because we found something underground, um, you know, ancestral burial ground or something like that. But um, the term specifications, I find, is is uh, kind of a tragically loose one in this space where I hate to bog a contract down with hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of attachment fluff, but there's really not any specs in this in this space. So you know, you build to what the legal team would say, you know, usual and customary. So maybe that's okay, right? If if you uh, if you're installing galvanized steel in some spot and someone someone else might say, no, I use PVC there. Um, a lot of it is just experience and smarts and, and good faith and uh, just having trusted partners. So, um, you know, you don't want to haggle over every pipe support and every bracket. But, you know, things do break, things do corrode. And so I think a lot of it just falls back on uh, working with people with resume, references, track record. Um, and then, yeah, sometimes you do find things that look a little weird that somebody, an engineer on one job I was working on, he had a, a lot of experience in food and beverage and his electrical trays looked a lot different than what people were expecting at an ag digester. It didn't mean that they right. didn't work fine, but right. uh, you would have more typically seen those trays at a, at a cheese plant, not that a, right. not a dairy farm. Right. Right. Interesting. Um, have you had any ex experience with an integrated project delivery team where you have, you know, the owner and the EPC or the, the OEM and the engineer all, you know, quote unquote, working on the same team? Not really. Um, certainly there's some popular models out there. And yeah. at the end of the day, somebody's got to be a prime and somebody's got to be a sub. And, you know, collaboration sounds good as a term, but at the end of the day, somebody's got to work for somebody. Um, so everybody in the pool together as equals. I'm not so sure that you can never get out of your own shadow in that kind of a, a mode. Yeah, agreed. And we've we've tried it, and and with mixed mixed results. Well, I should say we've we've tried to promote it with mixed results as as this concept. We've never got a project through to the end. What I like about it though is, particularly in a market like this where you have, 
you know, an owner who may not be as knowledgeable, although many of them are. And then you have um, EPCs who are very knowledgeable. Sometimes, because I've been in the shoes of the EPC, I can say this. You you know you know that there's going to be stuff beyond your scope, but if you spend enough time defining your scope, you, you know that it's going to come up, and you know it's going to be a change order, and you know you're going to have grounds to stand on. But is that really, if you know ahead of time, is that really in the best interest of the project, right? So so stepping back and saying, okay, we we will look at the whole project, not just our EPC scope. We look at the whole project, and we say, this is probably going to happen. This is going to happen. This is our scope. All that together is a big number. And let's work together to to deliver this project under that number. I think it it brings the the knowledge and experience of you know the the right people to bear for the betterment of the whole project and not just their scope, right? Yeah, I think the way that I would tag that would be like this progressive design build with a guaranteed max price with some transparency on your mm-hmm. markups and then aspire to some shared savings. So, yeah. If let's say there's eight key components on a project, you're not going to haggle over every valve and say, hey, there's these two valves. We've got a $20 valve and a $30 valve. How should we go forward? But if you focus on everything that's like six figures and up, let's really sit down and, okay, we want these five pre-approved bidders. Let's look at the bid tabs when it's all said and done and hold them up to the light and say, you know, let's not fall into the trap of buying from the low guy, right? Um, the number two bidder seems to be more credible. Uh, their, their proposals seem to be more thoughtful, more complete. And so it's okay to justify not going with the low, the low price. You know, you and I would always espouse beware of buying the cheapest thing, right? Because you get what you pay for. Totally, totally. Uh, uh, building on that, if you were brought in by an owner who was looking to evaluate EPC firms, um, what are some of the key criteria you'd be highlighting saying you you got to be looking at this this and this and those other things may or may not be as important but how would you counsel a, an owner in evaluating epcs sure oh yeah this term beauty contest is kind of a funny one but you know what does that even mean right so you're looking at resumes you know the epc will always tend to push back and say, I can't guarantee the specific people on your job because that's a function of workflow, right? And yep. and uh, I'd love to say that this rock star project manager is going to be here for you, but, you know, it's a function of when the work comes in. So I would say, you know, more people are comfortable asking about markups and mm. um, Give me some transparency. And so somebody who might ask for 15%, somebody might ask for 10%, and then trying to true that up as a uh, selection criteria. I think some of that EPC selection will also really tie into the risk level of the project, right? If, mm-hmm. if this is a tap input, an approach that's been done 100 times, then you might go with somebody that might be a more, more a powerful constructor. but if if it's a if it's a leading edge technology, you might really want to look at the engineering staff and the engineers' resumes, just knowing that there's going to be more integration needed, more detailed heat balances, heat recovery, and people will tend to fall in the trap of looking at the local office, which is just human behavior, right? Oh, oh, so you got 50 people 10 miles down the road, whereas an amazing firm maybe two states away and they may just mobilize for your project, you know, I would encourage your owners to not default to the closest person next to you, right? That might be fine for a shopping mall or a school, right? but some of these advanced technologies, experience is paramount, resources are paramount, resources are getting very, very lean these days. So asking the hard questions of, okay, so where is the labor going to come from? I've, I've sadly seen a few owners get left a little bit high and dry when it comes to some over promises from the EPC on resources. So I've been trying to educate myself and educate others on strong EPCs on my website, green-tech.com. I keep a list of EPCs there, you know, engineers, constructors, EPCs, and anybody listening to this that feels like they should be on there, that they're not, I'd be glad to talk to them in that. Um, 
my business is all about educating and transparency. And so um, just if, if there's good help out there that's um, that's got runtime, that's credible in this space, love to hear about it that I've missed maybe. I love that. Well, for one more time, what was the website? Green-tech? Yeah. Yeah, green-tech. So green's got three E's in it, G-R-E-E-N-E, and tech is T-E-C. So green-tech.com. Right. .com, awesome. Yeah. Now you mentioned, I think, also you sat in the seat of the owner. Is that Did I hear that correctly in your opening comment? Yeah, yeah. What, what, is so that, what has that helped you? What are some things that have come out of that that have really helped your view towards, you know, particularly the development of a project? It's really helpful to be able to think as the investor thinks, as you look at the capital stack and understanding um, debt to equity ratios and, you know, how will the equity, how will that cash water flow go, right? So in these projects that have some risk, you know, the debt gets paid first and then, you know, as an owner, you've got the most risk and reward and understanding, okay, the sources of equity, whether, you know, you're, you're dealing with uh, family offices or private equity and understanding how even they think, right? So if you're facing a $100 million project, not all equity is the same, not all debt's the same. And especially in this time of the ITC, we're, we're watching who's going to buy these tax credits and what are their concerns going to be, you know, as this Inflation Reduction Act really kicks into high gear. Um, if somebody can go buy a $10 million tax credit from a project, what will they pay for that $10 million tax credit? What will their concerns be? All kinds of anxieties about indemnifying um, the owners of tax credits in case a project struggles. So, uh -huh. um Interesting. So, so your your focus from an owner's perspective has, or your at least where you went with your answer initially, was more on the on the financing piece than you know is the technology going to work? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and so, so you know, we're not all born understanding what off balance sheet financing means, non recourse debt. Right. So, so, so projects development and um, whether it's a power plant or a biogas plant or a solar plant, I've just been fascinated educating myself how solar people do deals of late. So these P flips and all kinds of wild arrangements and, um, you know, just wheeling out tax credits. You know, I'm an engineer. I'm not a, not an MBA and I'm not a, not an investment banker. So understanding how the financial people think how they roll and how I can communicate well with them is uh, it's a good time. It's it's a good time and it's essential, right? In, in project development, I mean, I, I'm, I'm like you, I, I'm an engineer and, you know, I love to see stuff get built. Um, but to your point, somebody's got to pay for it. And so the, the real skill set in project development is being able to talk the technical stuff, but also, you know, at least understand enough of the financial stuff to, to really to your point earlier, you're you're educating and translating, right? And you're 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 bridging that gap between the finance and the technical. And because there's people that just know finance and there's people that just know technical, but the real sweet spot in development is to sit in between both camps and and bring them both along, right? Right. Yeah. It's if if you if you aren't prudent, you can lose a lot of time just mm. spinning your wheels, mm. right? So you always need to know what's next, right? What's my rate limiting step? If I could go left or I could go right, what is it that I really have to do today to keep myself on track, to keep my schedule going? If you say to yourself, you know, okay, I'm going to give myself six months to get this from first inquiry to FID, you got to hustle, right? Because you've got some engineering to do in there. You've got to go get your equity. You got to go get your debt and you got to go get your permitting. And if you don't know what information you need to submit in a permit, then you're just all ass backwards, right? Because everything flows in a very prescribed way. And if you don't have that Gantt chart properly laid out and know by this time next week, it's paramount for me to have done these four things. And if you don't know what those four things are, you're just going to lose time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
You mentioned briefly the the ITC, um, and now you know we have ERINs potentially you know sticking their nose into the market. What's well, but let's start with the ITC. I mean, what's your realizing? You know, you're not a tax accountant, nor do you play one on TV. Um, but what's your kind of engineering perspective on? You know, a, a is it real? B, you know, how to think about it, and and C, you know, are you already seeing it drive? projects and there's no order to that question but just kind of talk, talk to me about itc and how it works in our space from your vantage point right so I, I love this deal i was reviewing yesterday where they took every damn tax credit under the sun and somehow we're taking five dollar gas and we're selling it for like 150 dollars or something oh, by wow. the time you lay all these but I i'm like it. wait a minute so time out guess what you can't take both the itc and the ptc dude you gotta like pick one so <laughs> So just getting, you know, alignment on on what what is acceptable, right? So right, right, right. to me, the wild one out there is this Section 45Z tax credit, which is a CI adjusted PTC. Okay. So if you're if you're making product, biogas, what have you, first uh, of January 2025, you can take three years of a production tax credit that can be upwards of like fifty dollars in an MBTU on a biogas project, depending on the the CI, the project. So that one is uh, is the is a wild and crazy one. And and God only knows if that project went electric and you had like an ERIN tied into that. Um, I think I think we're just really starting to see the tip of the iceberg with fascinating models of monetization. So despondency exists with the softness of California LCFS prices having dropped by two thirds. That said, there's um, definitely, you know, shining light on the hill here with the ITC. So um, to your point about, is it real and all that? So some of the prevailing wage um, hooks, I think are gonna be a little expensive. And I think some of the domestic content hooks are gonna be expensive too. So. I think the question's valid, you know, is it all worth it? Um, certainly you'll, you'll get something out of it, but um, you know, the, the, uh, the conspirators among us are saying it's just, uh, it's just a fancy way to jack up prices for projects. <laughs> and, and where, where is the ITC or the PTC in terms of, so the, 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 the IRAs announced last summer, is, is there still a process of like, the IRS is doing a bunch of stuff behind closed doors, and, and right. at some point they're going to come back to us and say, "Aha, this is how it works." Is that are we still in that phase? Totally, and uh, still in the public comment phase. So comments are open till mid March on the domestic content portion. Okay. So how this process goes, right? Announce, engage the public for feedback. And then have treasury rule, which, you know, is a part of that that's really quite cool where if you're a stakeholder here and the and the regs seem to be off base, if they're not tracking with reality, you, you can provide input that is actually listened to. So, yeah, treasury's ruled on uh, prevailing wage and apprenticeship. And there's still some things that uh, haven't haven't come out yet. Like I'm, I'm waiting for this 45Z. That'll be that'll be a big one. But OK. Like this apprenticeship will be fascinating to see what that even means, right? So somewhere between 10 and 12% of your labor has to be apprenticeship. So what what do these people do, right? For, so if you've got a million hours on a job and, and 100,000 of those have to be going to apprentice, apprentices, like what are they actually going to do, these people? And how do you teach them? And um, right. there's a do lot think to play out there. Do you think like I, I've had a lot of exposure, certainly especially ten years ago, to the you know particularly the German biogas market, and there's a whole generation of people right now who are you know in their in their early 30s to early 40s who you know just grew up in that market, and like is is there is there an aspect of it that's trying to pattern some of this after what happened in Europe, where you have a whole generation of green jobs and, and, and individuals who've built a career in a green industry? Is that is that what yeah. they're trying to get after here? That'll be great to see. I mean, the, the reality of the current situation is some of the talent is really hard to find because people haven't seen a light to pay 
some of the operations labor a lot of money. So, um, you know, operators are still a high turnover activity, not highly professional, not really a career path. So, you know, an operator that's working at a digester in Texas typically doesn't aspire to be like a project superintendent up in South Dakota, go work at an Amazon warehouse one day and a biogas project the next. So your vision of uh, a career path in, in something like biogas, I think would be, you know, extremely cool where people would even know what a career path was. I could go from right, right. this wage to a better wage. And yeah, I might have to move my family twice over my career, but if if I can get to uh, facility superintendent and make a very strong wage that I can um, save some money and support my family on, you know that would be great. So I I, I help the ABC get the operator training program going, mm. which is uh, twice a year, which is really the one spot that operators are able to get trained these days on running a biogas plant and so there's a curriculum and there's diplomas and levels of uh certification but is that the one that is, yeah. is that the one yeah. that's run out of university of uh, wisconsin oshkosh is that correct okay yeah. we, 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 one of our guys who's in our calgary office he's been through that he speaks very highly of it he, he loved his time there so yeah uh, cool cool okay yeah the reality, though, is is if you're not mechanically inclined when you show up there, you know they're not going to turn you into suddenly a mechanically inclined okay. person. Gotcha. So gotcha. You need to have had some time, you know, getting your getting grease on your fingernails and be comfortable. I'm comfortable taking a pump apart, um, so gotcha. the course will teach you how to do that. But if you're like, wait a minute, I'm not I'm not touching that pump. Um, right. You know they can't they can't save you if you, if you didn't grow up with a, an adult in your life teaching you righty tidy lefty lucy you might not be ready right i think uh, you're correct yeah now we talked a bit about uh itc and ptc what about the e-rins i mean that seems to be dominating a lot of conversations yeah. is it still in that same phase of kind of wait and see i mean it's it's a hope but it may not be you know uh concrete yet or where's that yeah. for those who aren't familiar so what we're hearing is the EPA um, is is committed to launching these. They're not interested in a lot of uh, smoothing out around the edges. They're like, listen, here's a here's a vision to launch these. It's going to involve the OEM like Tesla GM. You know, the the car fueler is going to share the RIN with the RIN generator in some way, which is new. That is that is kind of trailblazing, but there's also some fear that uh, things could get bogged down in litigation for a while. So, so yes, the uh, public comment ended uh, February 10th. Okay. So the doors closed there. Everybody got their comments in on Friday. And then June, they have to release the final. And then things are put in place in January 2024, where you can start generating ERINs. You know, and that's assuming that, you know, ExxonMobil don't litigate and have everything go sideways on us. So if you're, you know, coming back to project development, we've talked about a couple things that are financially quite attractive, but, you know, um, maybe a little bit undefined or uncertain. How are you guiding owners and developers and clients to navigate this climate is it hey here's my friend and she's a, a tax accountant or hey there's there's you know this like how are you helping people navigate that uh you're you're right so you know what i try to uh spend my time on is is getting to know people of credibility and quality so if a need arises in south dakota and it's somebody in ohio that has that bandwidth that resume that skill set i want to bridge that introduction so um I'm doing some fun projects along the way, like I've got uh, some events that I do myself, some networking mm. kind of things that help uh, exacerbate that to to kind of nurture the cream. So there's some people in this space that really get it, that are so bright, that are maybe sitting at a financial place or developers. And yes, there's other conferences, but uh, I've been doing a lot of work on that um, myself individually, just to kind of 
Um, yeah, my wife will kid me. She says, yes, your biggest gift is your connector, Paul. So, um, mm. and that's fine. I'll take that. Right. So, totally. Um, totally. Um, that's great. So let's talk. And actually, since we're on that and, and connecting the dots, I mean, you're, you're a founding member, um, maybe 30 second plug for, you know, American, uh, biogas council. I mean, yeah. what people should be members, obviously, like talk to us a bit about that for a second. Yes, for sure. So if you go to AmericanBiogasCouncil.org, uh, it's all there. And so membership between ABC and other groups is extremely affordable. And the ABC uh, has prided itself as being uh, kind of not the glamour crowd because we're very quick to poke fun at ourselves because we're dealing with like cow manure for our jobs. So can't take yourself too seriously. Um but, you know, I was there when uh, there were zero members and then we had our founding 12 and now we have uh, 360. Wow. So uh, awesome. it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful time. And uh, the, the key are these uh, working groups. So every week, the agricultural working group and the RNG working group and the policy working group, these calls are so meaningful where um, experts in the space that volunteer and donate the time. I mean, ABC has a lot of paid staff. They got 13 full-time paid staffers, um, but the calls are so meaningful. And then, um, you know, the events coming up like uh, Biogas Americas is not to be missed in Chicago in May. Um, you know, that's a year ago in Vegas, there was 1,050 people. You know, we're budgeting for 2,000 people this year. Wow, good yeah, for it's you. going to be that's uh, awesome. Huge. Yeah. I sat I sat on a panel in the fall with uh, Patrick Surface, the, the yeah. current executive director, and I, you know, Erins came up. This kid, and he's, you know, in between questions, I, I out of the corner of my eye, I'm seeing him, and he's he's working through his calculator on his phone, and he's crunching numbers, and and incredibly knowledgeable and articulate on what was going on in the space and how that impacts projects and yeah. Um, you know, I, I grew up when it was, uh, it was the Ontario Biogas Association before that it was called the APAO and then it became the Canadian Biogas Association. I sat on the board for a while. And, and so we did a fair amount of reciprocal stuff with the American Biogas Council. And, yeah. um, there was, a, there was a lady that was kind of at the head of it for a while. What was her name? Uh, Nor Norma or something? Is that, uh, so Nora, Nora Goldstein, she's kind of like a matriarch figure. Okay. So she was our original enabler, so it was okay. a cold Minnesota night, February uh, 2009, that uh, she said, hey, anybody want to start a biogas council? And then I got reeled in to be the wow. person on wow. that. But yeah, Nora, Nora Goldstein, JG Press, she was she's our matriarch. Okay, cool. Yeah, she was great. Okay, well, let's, as we kind of start to wind down here, what, you've, you've mentioned a couple times you're working on some exciting new technology, I think I've heard you say. Talk, talk to us a little bit about... We've talked about how do you how do you go through developing a project with maybe more conventional tech. What what's exciting for you, Paul, these days? What's on the horizon? What's maybe some new, you know, paths for carbon? Way to keep it in the system? You know, way to use it better? What's exciting you about the next yeah. maybe yeah. five years in the space? Right. So a big thing is on uh, nutrients. So mm. these projects that get installed. The carbon story gets everybody's attention, but the nitrogen, phosphorus, water story are like an afterthought. And so projects get bigger and the land available to spread nutrients is less and less. So I'm doing a lot with organic mm. fertilizer, algae, stripping, and um, some other cool technologies on the nutrient side, doing some and, work and, now. And on the yeah. nutrient side, I'm curious, is it, what's the barrier? You talked earlier about, you know, kind of barriers to development and what's the, I forget, you had used an interesting phrase that I forget now, but essentially what's, what's, what's stopping us from developing? Is it on the nutrient side, is it technology that we're, we're not quite there yet? Or is it the commercial markets that are not quite there yet? Or what is it? Yeah. So what's interesting is I would, I would layer a third thing in there. That would be politics, right? Mm. So the organic fertilizer market has no interest in big ag getting involved in their space. You've got providers that are making like organic fertilizer, no joke, out of bat guano. So literally, that's, that's the size they're operating at. So now suddenly a 20,000 head dairy farm can make organic ammonium nitrate fertilizer 
It's a company, New Organics, I work with. They've got a bunch of IP surrounding this. And um, just a total needle mover when it comes to shipping that to California. You can spray it on organic lettuce, and the farmers love it. Um, so that's really up and coming. But but the political pushback mm. there is significant from the entrenched uh, establishment. But you that's can cool. – you know, when the so the running joke out there is, you know, suddenly farmers are making more from the manure than the milk. And then suddenly you can, again, make more from the fertilizer than the manure and the milk. So, um, you know, the farmer being the ultimate recycler, there's opportunity there with um, fertilizer creation. Yeah. And I always saw like when I did a fair amount of policy advocacy work when I was on the board and it was you know, we would go in there and, you know, maybe the Canadian Solar Institute, you know, association was leaving when we were coming in. And when we left, the wind guys were coming in and their story was easy, right? Their story was simple. You could drive down the road. You understood it like that. Our story was, we, we, we always struggled to get traction because our story was so complicated. But as engineers, we always knew that the story was complicated because there was so much value potential, right? But it was really hard to get everybody to understand it so that you could you know, get that value out into the market. And so now what's exciting is, you know, it's more than just generating electricity or it's more than just making gas. It's making gas that's got, you know, a low carbon intensity. And now we're finally figuring out the nutrients. And so all those aspects of the story that was so complicated are now getting their, you know, time and time to shine, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, more coming in the electric arena, as you touched on things like, you know, the bloom fuel cell. So where I sit in New York, the electrify everything crowd is winning. So biogas is is less in favor. So, um, you know, talk about a sexy story. If you can fuel your Tesla from cow manure, um, you know, that's that's about as good as it gets. So right. Yeah. Stories like that are uh, up and coming. Cool. And, and are you seeing anything in terms of the next generation on what to do with the gas? Are you seeing stuff coming around the corner on that? Yeah. So one thing I'm working on this week is uh, small-scale LNG. So if you've oh, got yeah. a project that's far away from a pipeline, uh, going with micro-LNG, and so people will knock that and say, oh, it uses too much power. Well, okay, but you know what? You can put LNG and send it to a, like a clean energy fueling station in any city and get D3 RINs for that. So the... Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. And there's some, it there's some, it there's, wasn't long ago. Everything had to go to California, right? Don't, don't even talk to me about anything else. It's going to California LCFS, but 200 went to 150, went to 100 is now at $62. And so the voluntary market, you know, the, the next good answer to a good question from you would be, where's the voluntary market going, right? So natural gas utilities are literally fighting for their existence. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. need RNG in the worst way. It is expensive. How do I buy RNG when I'm forced to buy my lowest cost gas supply? So, you know, the the optics of natural gas suddenly have gone in the last five years from it being a, a wonderfully clean fuel to suddenly, you know, it's a bad guy. So um, name a natural gas utility that isn't really saying, how do I get RNG into my pipes? You know, hydrogen's a cool story, but People are freaked out about putting hydrogen into the natural gas pipeline. It's like, I don't know, can I really do that? But but RNG could not be a more drop-in fuel to the gas infrastructure that exists. Yeah, and and if you want to compare, you know, hydrogen versus RNG with the same CI score, the price points aren't comparable, at least at this point in, in, in what we've seen. The RNG is just much more economical relative to, you know, green hydrogen. So green hydrogen has a place, but I don't think it's in the pipe. I think it's in a vehicle or it's in a, you know, in, in some existing facility that uses gray hydrogen and can't go anywhere else. But no, I, I think, I think RNG um, as, as a blended fuel has, you know, because of that CI component, I think has an exciting, uh, exciting future. Right. So yeah. Um, cool. Well, what else have we not talked about that we should be talking about as we, uh, as we start to uh, land yeah. the plane here? I'm just I'm just blown away by every week there's some new private equity company in the space with mm-hmm. a half a billion dollars to deploy that um, you know on, on one hand opportunities abound on another hand things are getting more more competitive out there I you know I was in the middle of a dairy deal last week where you know he had eight different offers in front of him he was trying to to to, to parse between 
so um, it's uh, it's it's gone from a uh, small boutique. Yeah, it's okay to build things out of two by fours and wood just to keep cost down kind of uh, space with ag to now it's, yeah, just build it safely. The issues now are schedule, right? So hearing yeah. stories about six month delays for like electrical cabinetry. And so, um, you know, anybody that's able to crack the code to help the industry with supply chain robustness, right? Get us, you know, it's now we're suddenly looking for resources, looking for engineering, looking for construction, looking for electrical cabinetry because so demand is is so high. So yeah, and and we've you know I was down in Houston last week meeting with clients and potential clients, and a lot of the conversation was with with the potential clients was our incumbent e- engineering group or EPC is just just swamped. So what's your what's your capacity like right now? Like that I heard that question so many times last week. What's your capacity like? Um, and then on the on the private equity piece, we've you know we've said to ourselves we've done a we've done a fair amount of M and A work on the technical side in PowerGen. We're thinking, you know, can we take our RNG experience and merge it with our M&A experience and and provide that as a service? Because we think that's something that you know, it sounds like you're already seeing it. So, you know, there's there's a lot of activity and and our, the job of folks like yourself and, and ourselves is, you know, how do we guide the mar- market and the industry so that, you know, it's 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 done properly. It's done well. It's done successfully. Right. Because it takes it takes 10 good projects to erase a bad project. Right. So yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's important. Cool. Well, Paul, this has been this has been fun. You're clearly uh, in the space day in and day out, and have been for a while. and had a lot of success, uh, and and so you have a lot of value to bring. And uh, I really just appreciate you carving out an hour to chat with us. And I know you got a lot, a lot on the go, so that that's yeah. that, that's meaningful. So how for our listeners, um, how best to find you? You mentioned already green with three e's hyphen tec dot com. Yeah. Um, are you on LinkedIn? Are you, you know? Sure enough. Um, yeah, I'm pretty visible on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active. And so people joke with me, my Paul, you're you're very active on LinkedIn, aren't you? Like, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like sharing. So uh, yeah, That's LinkedIn right. or greentech.com are the, the two good spots to find me. I welcome, awesome. uh, welcome hearing from any listeners. Happy to, happy to be in touch. Yeah, yeah. No, it sounds like you can add a lot of value to a lot of people. So Thank you again for joining us and to our listeners, thank you for for tuning in. This was season two, episode three of the Energy Radio podcast, where Paul and I chatted about developing projects in the biogas and RNG space and how to navigate um, all aspects of picking the right EPC, figuring out the financing uh, and everything in between. Thank you for listening. And until next time, uh, stay safe and have fun.